All right. Good to be back after our fall break, back getting to kind of walk through Romans again. I got to admit, it's a little weird to stand up and uh, speak to camels and sharks and T-Rexes. Uh, so that's, that's kind of odd, but also a little bit fun. If you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and go to Romans 6, that's where we are. Okay, so while you're doing that, let me give you the 60-second catch-up, or the, yeah, the 60-second rundown of Romans so far. At the beginning of this book, we talked about um, how uh, in in chapter 1 through chapter 3, 20, we talked about this idea that all humanity is sinful, and because of that, because every human being has rebelled against God, that they are rightly under the wrath and punishment of God. Uh, that he is right, he is justified in uh, punishing uh, sinful humanity. But then we finally, after it felt like like six months of bad news teaching on that every week, we finally came to 321 and that little chunk right there after that, 321 through 28, through 26 specifically, but um, and, and then on through the rest of chapter Four that talks about God's grace in justifying sinners through faith. That Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve so that we can be declared righteous. That's, that's the word for justified, declared righteous in God's sight. And that comes to us uh, by grace through faith. Um, and He freely bestows on us in those things. But one of the cool things is that uh, Paul wants to make sure that you know that that has more to do with than just like your afterlife. It has to do with more than just your afterlife. It has to do with more than just going to heaven. That that has some very real and profound effects on our life today. Um, a strong impact, what Jesus has done on our life today. And so we come into Romans 5-8, through 8, which talks about God's grace in giving us new life. I love for like the... Uh, the compactness and the and the depth of gospel stuff. I love three twenty one through twenty six. Um, but my favorite kind of chunk of Romans is where we are right now, Romans five through eight. And that's really just been in the last couple of years that I found myself really falling in love more and more with this section of scripture as we talk through it. And so, a um, couple of weeks ago, when we were in our text, we were in Romans five, and Paul spoke of this idea that we have a hope and an assurance of our future, uh, future hope because of God's love that's been poured into our hearts. And and then he talked about. Uh, these two different realms or these two different ages, these two different regimes, that of Adam, the former age, which was ruled by Adam's sin and it was marked by Adam's, uh, by our sin and our death and our shame and our guilt and all of those things. Um, and then he talked about this new regime, this one that overpowers that, which is the regime of Jesus, which is marked by grace and life and justification. Then he comes to this verse, uh, this line in verse 20. Um, which is really important. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Um, That no matter how big our sin has been, no matter how big the sin of those under Adam's reign, under Adam's kind of regime, was that grace always outpaces it. That God's grace is always going to be bigger than it, which is a really um, beautiful idea and, and one that I really love. But it is an idea that has led to some misuse and some abuse is actually an idea that leads to a very important question. If God's grace is always going to cover my sin, 
if God's grace is always bigger than my sin, then why stop sinning? Like, can't I just kind of go on living my life how I want, knowing that God's got it covered? I mean, that's what Paul says, that, that where sin increased grace abounded all the more. I've told you in here, I've mentioned at least at some point, probably before number you were in here, uh, a, a man, a friend that I had by the name of Paul, um, not the apostle, but another Paul, uh, who uh, several years ago, he and I connected. He actually saw me studying for the table one night. He saw me, I was, I was reading my Bible in the middle of while waiting to get my cell phone-like service, and he was in there, and we struck up, struck up a conversation uh, Paul is a member of the Baha'i faith, which I don't know how much you know about the Baha'i faith, but basically they believe that all the five major world religions are just different reflections of one God that are kind of progressing um, all the way up to the, the most fullest, which is the Baha'i faith, and, and that's what he believed in. And, and Paul and I would meet together, uh, I think it was every other week, and talk through religion and talk through all those kinds of things. He's a very kind man, an older man. Um, one of Paul, he, he grew up Christian actually. One of Paul's big problems with Christianity, though, um, was ideas like Romans 5.20, or the ideas that a lot of Christians got from it, which is, uh, like, grace kind of covers me so I can live however I want. He, he talked to me about this uh, co-worker of his who was leaving his wife, and Paul was in the middle of a conversation with him and said, I, like, don't, don't you think that's wrong? Like, don't you think... Like, that, that if you're a Christian, then you shouldn't be doing that, right? And, and this so-called Christian co-worker said to him, Yeah, I mean, yes, we believe it's wrong as Christians to leave our wives, to leave our spouses, but we also believe in grace. And so, like, I know that it'll kind of be okay in the end. God will take care of that. And something about that left a, a, just a, a bad taste in Paul's mouth towards the grace that is described in Christianity. Um, but the, the question needs to be asked, if God's grace always covers my sin, then why do I need to not sin? I don't know if you've ever asked that, or maybe you haven't asked that, but maybe you've lived that. Uh, maybe there's that thing inside of you that, that knows that you sometimes, sometimes take sin kind of lightly because you know God's got it covered in the end. And I probably shouldn't do this, but, but you kind of know that, I mean, that's the good news, is that you'll still get to go to heaven anyway, right? Because of grace. Maybe you live like that and you kind of wish you didn't, but it's just there. It's hard to not think like that sometimes. That's the question that I think got asked to Paul a number of times because he preached grace so strongly and because this concept was so huge. So um, prominent, I think, was this question that Paul decides in the middle of Romans to stop and ask it for his listeners. Just in case any of you are wondering, Romans 6.1, this is what he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So that he, he goes, let me just ask the question for you. I've been asked it enough. Let me say what may be on your mind. Is it okay then that we just continue on sinning? In fact, is it even in a weird way a good way? Because the, a good thing, because the more I sin, the more God's grace is seen. The more God's grace is expanded. So should I just continue on in that? And his answer there comes in the very next verse, verse 2. By no means. 
the Greek phrase there is meganoito, like may it not be, may it never be. It's actually one of the strongest negative Greek phrases he could put up there. Um, it's like saying um, there's no chance or may it never be or possibly even cussing to some degree. How strong he is saying we should not do that. That's not how we want to live. But Paul doesn't just say, and this is one of the reasons I love Romans 6. Paul does not just say, hey, no, you shouldn't sin, stop sinning, live a better life. He doesn't say that, actually. What Paul does in Romans 6 is he does this really neat job of interweaving indicative statements and imperative statements back and forth to prove his point. What do I mean by that? Indicative and imperative. Those of you guys English majors could probably help us out. And that indicative just means like he's going to make these... Indicative is just like a statement of fact or a statement of truth. Um, to indicate something to be true, imperative being a command of some kind. One of my hole punches has come off. Um, some kind of command. So, so if I say to my kids, go clean your room, that's an imperative statement. Okay, Go clean your room. That's a command that I'm giving to them. An indicative statement would be this. Uh, you are a part of our family, and as a family, we take care of our home together. That's an indicative statement. And combined, you're a part of our family we take care of our home together, so go clean your room. That's how those two things come together. That's what Paul is going to do um, throughout Romans 6. He's going to go over these things a lot. And this is really important for understanding this chapter. And it's really important for understanding the Christian life. Imperatives for the Christian life, that is, when we say this is what you should do for God, those statements always flow out of indicatives. That is, this is what God has done for you. In the Christian life, it's never just don't do this. It's never just do this. It's never just stop doing this. It is God has done this for you. God has made you this kind of person. This is your new identity in Christ and therefore live like this. That's what we call gospel-centered life, letting Jesus' work and his identity shape every area of your life. And that's what Paul demonstrates masterfully in this chapter right here. He'll, he'll go on, actually, here's the very first indicative statements that he's going to make in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So his first indicative statement, his first statement of truth is this. We are dead to sin and its power as Christians. He says, when you gave your life to Jesus in a way that is hard for me to uh, explain because I do not fully understand it, but this is a reality. When you gave your life to Jesus, you were um, on some level, to some degree, you were actually united with him so that Christ's death and resurrection became your death and resurrection. That you died with Him and that you rose with Him. That um, this takes place so that you can now have the ability to live a new life like Him. And when does Paul say this takes place? At the point of your baptism. When you were baptized and you went down into the water, Paul says, you were buried into Christ. And then when you came back up, you were raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Um, this is, this issue of baptism is such a huge, uh, significant issue and one that has had a lot of debate about it over the last 30, 40 years. There are a number of people who 
who really think that baptism is important because of chapters like this, and there are other people who really want to downplay baptism. There are a lot of people who want to downplay baptism because they think of it as like legalism, like a works-based salvation. Well, if you think that you've got to get baptized to be saved, that's just a work, and that doesn't count as, as real grace through faith. But that's not what Paul's getting at at all here. Um, no, 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 we don't believe that there's anything you do. We don't believe that baptism itself is magical or saves you. But in the New Testament, when someone gives their life to Christ, the natural step they take in demonstrating that is baptism. And Paul says this is when, this is the moment at which this takes place. We, we honestly could spend a night just talking about the theological implications of baptism and what that all is. We don't have time for all that. Here's the good news for you. Uh, Scott actually has tonight a document that he and another guy have kind of worked on over the years that he hands to anybody who has questions on baptism. So if you're, <clears throat> excuse me, interested in, in learning more about that, first of all, we're always um, available and would love to chat with you. But if you just want to go read on it and, and see a little bit more what the Bible says, you can come and get that from him at the end of the night. I would really encourage you uh, to do that. Now Paul's going to fill in some of the details of what he's just said. He just said you died with Christ and then you were raised up with him to walk in newness of life. So now he's going to explain that. First, the death side of things in verses... Uh, uh, let's see, five through six. For if we have been, or five through seven, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There are a lot of people who think that the Christian life is this never-ending struggle between your old nature, your old self, and your new nature. Between the old sinful you that was, that was there and dominant, and between the new spiritual you, or the new Christian you, or the new Christ-like you, and there is every day there is a war between these two trying to see who can win. And, and if you're right, then you're leaning into the new self to be able to overcome that old man or that old woman. But that actually flies against what Paul says right here. Paul says that it's not a battle with your new self and your old self because your old self is gone. Your old self actually doesn't exist anymore. Actually, and it's more than just your old self that goes away. Uh, John Stott, New Testament caller, says this, What was crucified with Christ when you gave your life to Him was not a part of you called your old nature, but the whole of who you were before your conversion. That is, when you came up out of the water, a different person came out of the water. A new person came out of the water when that happened. I, I like to tell the story of when I was explaining this to my daughter who was about to get baptized, Ella, when she was in second grade, and she was really excited. I was trying to explain this concept from Romans 6 to her, and so she stood up in her class one day. It was kind of some show-and-tell thing where, where a kid gets to announce some, some you know, big news in their life, and so she stood up and said, hey, my name's Ella. My, my news for the week is that I'm going to be a new person next week. Um, which is like blowing second graders' minds. Are we going to have a new kid in class? Or um, And Hudson, actually, I remember trying to work through this with Hudson, my son. He was a little concerned, like he was going to like lose his sister, and a new sister would come in the, the house or something like that, um, which is silly but also more real than he knows, um, according to Paul, that, that something new happens in you when that happens. And he then begins to explain a little bit more of that in the following verses, 8 through 11. He says, now if we have died with Christ, 
we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives to God, or the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this little section of Scripture brings two questions to the surface upon initial reading. The first question is this, in what way did Jesus die to sin? Like, I get it that I had to die to sin. I was a sinful person, so I had to die to sin. Why does Paul say that Jesus died to sin? Did Jesus need to die to sin if he never actually sinned? Well, here's the truth. that Jesus was not obviously exactly like us in the sense that he never did sin, like you and I did. But he was, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, that he was made like us in every way and that he experienced temptation like us in every way. So he came and lived in a world that was dominated by sin. He came and put on flesh and lived in the weakness of human beings who are uh, constantly influenced by, subject to temptation even though he never gave into that. And now Paul says, because of his death and resurrection, that's no longer the case for him. That he is dead to that, so it doesn't even have the possibility of temptation for him. The second question that needs to be asked in this section is, when do we get raised to new life? Because in verse 8 he says, we will be raised to live a new life. And then in verse 11 he says, consider it already done. Consider yourself alive in God. So which is it? Um, Well, as is the case with many things that relate to the new kingdom of God and the new man or woman that we are in Christ, the answer is both. Uh, That there will be a day when Jesus' resurrection project will come to completion and I will be made entirely new and you will be made entirely new. First John talks about this and I think three, that we will be like him for we will see him as he is. That when, when our eyes are open to see him, when, he, when we are uh, taken up and we are given new bodies and, and a new mind, a new, ad, uh, uh, yeah, a new mind and all that stuff, that we will be made completely new. Um, until that point though, we are we are being made new, that we are new already to some degree. We, we are already new, and that, that process of newness is continuing. We are, this is how some people say it, we are becoming what we are. That's the description of the Christian life, that we become what we are. Uh, Colossians 3 talks about this. It says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And then he says this, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you already have the new self and the new self is being made new in the image uh, of the knowledge or yeah, in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And then verse 11, we transition. So everything Paul has given us so far has been indicative statements. This is who you are. This is what has happened to you. This is what's taken place. And then verse 11, he begins to switch and he says, So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And now he goes into more imperatives in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
So here's the imperative. He's been telling you, uh, you're dead to sin. It has no authority. So here's the command. If sin has no authority over you, then stop acting like it does. Don't hand the members of your body, and by that, he's talking about probably not just your body, but your mind, your abilities, all of your faculties. Do not hand those things over to sin to be used by sin. Instead, he says, take those things and hand them over to God to be used by Him, to be instruments for uh, on His behalf. And then he'll echo this idea. We'll talk about it a little bit later in the chapter. But, but these verses here actually are significant because what they do is they reveal to us that even though something decisive has happened in your life, even though something decisive has happened in my life, I went down into the baptistry, the old person died, and a new person emerged, that doesn't mean that change is automatic. That doesn't mean that this is just magic and everything is easy from here on out. There is still effort to be done on our part. And so Paul says, um, put the effort in. Do not offer your body to the things of sin. Offer it instead to God. Um, Then he says this, um, sin should have no dominion over you because you are not under law but under grace. There are some who like to take that word law there and use it generically. And say, as Christians, we're not under law. We're not under commands. We're not under rules. We're just a, a religion of grace. So kind of live how you want. But, but that's not what Paul's getting at here. We've said this to you, that almost every time Paul uses the word law in his writings, specifically in Romans, he's talking about the Mosaic law. So what he's saying is we're not under the old age of the law. We're not under the old regime of the law and some of the complications that the law caused. Next week we'll talk about this in Romans 7, that the law was a good thing, but it came with some complications to it. And Paul says that's not us anymore. Now we live under grace Um, but here he is stressing grace again, and so he knows the question's still bubbling around in people's minds, so so he's going to ask that same question he asked in verse 1, only he's going to take a different angle on it. In verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? So, since I am under grace, can I just can I just keep sinning? And, And the answer is again the same, by no means. Then he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice we've switched back into indicative mode. He's not giving commands right now. He's just telling you the truth about yourself, that you have been set free from that and are now um, in a new era. Now, in the first half of this chapter, there was this contrast going back and forth that we just went through between being dead and alive. Um, We're dead to our sins. We're alive in God. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been raised back to life with Him. So this contrast has come between death and life. Now he's going to move into a new contrast, and he starts talking about slavery. And so you expect that the contrast is going to be between slavery and freedom, but actually the contrast is between slavery and slavery. And he begins to talk about the idea of being a slave to sin or being a slave to righteousness. Now, it's true that we have freedom in Christ, and Paul will talk about this. But Paul's trying to make a point here, and that is that 
everyone is going to be serving something. Everyone is going to be giving their life over to something. And what you habitually obey, you eventually become enslaved to. And so Paul says it, it's going to happen for all of us. Uh, it just depends on which direction you go. Now the good news, and Paul makes this clear, is that we have a choice in it. That we are no longer true slaves of sin. It does not have ownership over us. So we can choose instead to be slaves to righteousness, to be slaves to God. But it is possible, I think Paul is saying, to even if, it's not in, even if you are not a slave to sin in truth, you can become a slave to sin in practice by habitually giving yourself over to something. What you obey over and over again, you become enslaved to. Um, so Paul's going to give another imperative here, but first he has to take this little, apolog- uh, this little section to kind of give like a miniature apology slash explanation. Look at the first half of verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So here's what I think he's saying. I think Paul's saying, yes, the truth is that, that following Jesus is not the same as slavery. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. All of you who are weary and heavy laden because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so it's not the same, Paul says, I think he would say, it's not the same as slavery. He's not a hard slave driver or anything like that. But what I'm trying to get across to you, Paul says, is that you Um, that you must have exclusive allegiance to either one or the other. That you're going to be sold out, that you're going to belong to one or the other. So because I don't have the ability to explain to us in our human minds, Paul says, the fullness, I'm just going to go ahead with this slavery analogy as I talk through it. And here's what he says in the second half of verse 19. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Um, He says this, and and so this is kind of, he talked about this earlier. Take the members of your body, offer them to God, not to sin. Now he says, don't offer them in slavery to your sin, but in the same way that you used to do that. You you know the way that non-Christians run after the things that they want with this wholehearted devotion sometimes to do anything they can to get the thing they want, whether that be success or pleasure or happiness. You know the way sometimes in your own life sin has dominated you so much that you've planned ahead on how you could sin or how you could get away with it, that you've, that you've found ways of sinning. Paul says take that same kind of devotion that you used to have to your sin and place it now towards God Himself. That same kind of all-in nature that pagans, that unbelievers give towards their sin, you ought to have that same degree of passion and commitment, at least in giving yourself over to God. Um, He goes on in verse 20, actually, and, and here's why Paul says it's easy to do that, because there's no comparison. When you take these two masters, there's no comparison between what they pay in their work. And here's what he says in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So 
think back for just a minute on those moments in your life when you have lived as a slave to sin and how that worked out. Because the way sin works is that it always gives these incredible promises to us in the moment that if you will take part in this, if you will just reach out and grab a hold of this, then it promises to give you happiness or it promises to give you success or it promises to give you comfort or it promises to give you freedom. That's what it promises most of all, that, that to live the way you want is the freedom that you've been seeking and to break away from these rules that are kind of holding you back. That's what will give you the fulfillment you want. But what sin always actually ends up delivering to you, the moment you reach out for that freedom or that happiness or that joy, it pulls it away and then hands you shame and then hands you condemnation. And then hands you death. That's what Paul says. Is it steals away from you. It, it does this thing inside of you where it feels like the real you is getting taken away. Like the real you is getting hijacked or killed off. And that's because that's exactly what's happening. The wages of sin is death. That's what it pays its employees. That's what it pays those people who work for it. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. There's no such thing as being completely free. Every freedom that you run after means restriction in another area of your life. So you can be completely free from discipline. It just means that you will eventually be enslaved to laziness. You can be completely free of uh, all authority and just break yourself away from that. What that means, though, is that you will be a slave to fulfilling your own selfish desires. You can be completely free of community and the messiness of relationships and friendships and just do your own thing. But what happens is you become a slave to self-centeredness and to loneliness in the end. There's never a choice between just slavery and freedom. It's always just which slavery you're going to have. But he says this, that because of Jesus, we have a choice in the matter. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification, which is just the big word for holiness. To be sanctified is to become holy. And it's in, or its natural result, which is eternal life. Our old master always paid us exactly what we deserved, which was death. But our new master bestows the free gift of eternal life. And because we died and rose with Jesus in baptism, we are free now to serve that new one. We no longer have to serve the old one. We are free from sin's domination and control in our lives. But here's the big question. Why does it not feel like that? Why, when you look around at Christians who are supposed to be freed from sin's, uh, sin's domination, why does it not look like a lot of Christians are free of sin's domination and hold? Why does it look like, why does it feel like so many of us are so deeply controlled by the sin we're supposedly set free from? That's what we're going to talk about in just a few minutes after a break. So it is February 17th, 1974, and a young man by the name of Norio Suzuki walks into the jungles of Lubang Island in the Philippines, and he's on a mission. Uh, Suzuki was this 
college dropout that had, he, he started university, decided it wasn't for him, decided instead he wanted to kind of travel and see the world. So uh, he leaves and he spends like four years just kind of traveling around the world. But after doing that for just a little bit, he decides he's bored with that too. Doesn't know what else he's going to do with his life. And so he, he comes up with this plan for himself that he, he's got this, this threefold mission for his life that before he dies, he wants to see, to find, to discover these three things. Uh, the first is this. He wants to go and find a panda in the wild. He wants to see a panda bear in the wild. Second, he wants to travel to the Himalayas and, and find the Yeti. All right? And then the third thing that he wants to find is this man right here, Hiru Onoda. It's his goal to discover this guy, and, and it's this man that has him walking out into the jungles on this particular day. Onoda was a lieutenant in the Japanese army during World War II. And his unit, his specific group, was stationed there on Lubang Island when in, I believe it was early 1945, the Americans came to, to take that area back. The Allied forces came. And most of his unit, most of the army that he was a part of, was either captured or killed in combat. Many were able to flee and get away beforehand. But uh, Onoda, along with three other guys, um, was not captured or killed, and he did not get off the island. Instead, he and these three guys retreated into the interior of the island, into the mountainous region of the jungles there, where they hid out and continued to the best of their ability to fight, continued warring with any forces they, they could see while trying to hide out as much as possible as well. And because they were up there in the mountains, and because they were secluded away from all of civilization and all communication, they had no idea when several months later, on August 15, 1945, Japan announced that they would be surrendering to the Allied forces. Had no way of knowing that, no way of hearing that. And so they just continued on as though the war were happening. They continued living like that, trying to make things happen, trying to harass different uh, people that they may have seen. And, and, and so uh, the, the military and the Filipino government like, knew that these guys were up there, but they had no way to get information to them that the war had actually ended. So they tried several different things. They, they, uh, they actually flew an airplane over the jungles there and dropped these flyers down to these four men to let them know, uh, hey, Japan signed this treaty thing. They said they, they surrendered. The war is over. And the men got the flyers, actually. They saw the flyers, but they were positive that it was some sort of ploy, some sort of trick by the Allied forces to try to get them to come down. And so they stayed up there for a while longer. Later, a plane flew over dropping pictures and letters from their own family members. And they got those as well. But they were still convinced that it had to be some kind of a trick. Um, their, their commander had said before he left the island that they would come back for him. So, so you fight until you can't fight anymore. If that takes two years, if that takes three years, if that takes five years, we'll be back. And so they held to those words and they stayed up there. From time to time they would come down and they would set fire to a rice field or they would kill farmers' cattle, whatever, because they, they were under these strict orders to try and just harass the Allied forces in, in any way they can. They would even engage in shootouts with the local police from time to time. But they stayed up there, unaware, not knowing that the war had ended. And then weeks turned into months, 
and months turned into years. And, and over the course of that time, one of them actually at one point gave up. And he snuck away from the group and went down the mountains and went and turned himself in to the authorities. Two of them, over the many years up there, uh, were uh, shot in shootouts with the police and ended up dying over the course of that time. But Onoda remained up in the mountains of those jungles on Lubang Island for 29 years, living up there, continuing to fight a war that no longer existed, continuing to live this life that did not match up with reality. So we just told you, Paul just told you from Romans 6, that we as Christians are free from slavery to sin, that it has no more hold on us, that it has no more control over us, has no more power over us, and yet it often does not look like that, does it? And it often does not feel like that, does it? That so often the people that we look around at in church or in our own lives, we see all these Christians whose lives are just entrenched in pornography and sexual sin. Christians who are just enslaved to bitterness with no ability to forgive people who've wronged them or hurt them deeply in the past. We see um, Christians who are dependent on things like gossip to make themselves feel better about themselves or to make, the, make them think that they can kind of fit in with a group um, by talking about other people. We see Christians who are marked by pride or anger or greed. Why? I want to suggest to you tonight that part of, not all of the reason, but part of the issue here and the major reason why so many Christians live like this is that there are a lot of Christians who live their lives like Lieutenant Onoda. That is, that there is this monumental historical event that has taken place in their lives, and they don't even know about it. That virtually every Christian knows. I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian, that you know, that you believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sins and then He rose again from the grave, that He resurrected three days later. What a whole lot of Christians do not know or at least do not understand is that they died and rose with Him when it happened. That that was them as well. And consequently, because they do not know that, they end up living these lives that do not match up with reality. They live in a world where Jesus conquered sin and they are set free from it, and yet they live as though they're still enslaved to it. And it's not that they want to do that. So many Christians don't want to keep going back to the same sins over and over again. They hate that this is them. They hate that they act this way, and yet they just think that that's kind of how it is. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've just kind of always thought that, yes, I mean, I'm going to fight against sexual temptation. I'm going to fight against sexual sin, and I should. That's the right thing to do. But, I mean, but eventually you just kind of had it in your mind. I mean, eventually it's going to get the better of me. I can go for several days or weeks or months without going too far with my girlfriend or boyfriend or without looking at that thing on the phone, but I'm a, I'm a human being and I've got these like natural sexual drives and I'm not, I, not old enough to be married yet, so this is just going to be the fight I have to fight and I'm, I'm going to win some, I'm going to lose some. Maybe 
you've just always kind of thought that no matter how much you might want to, it's impossible for you to give to forgive that person who wronged you so deeply so long ago. I mean, most things you can, you can forgive, you can let slide, you can get over. But the thing that that person did to you, the thing that those people did to you, I mean, it's, it, that, that'll never get, you'll never get past that. You'll never be able to forgive that. Maybe you've just felt that. Maybe you've just always assumed that this is just who you are. You're somebody with a short fuse. My dad had a temper. My grandpa had a temper. It just kind of runs in the family. And, and I try to control it. I try to be self-controlled, but sometimes I'm just going to lose it. That's just who I am. That's just who it is. Here's the thing. If you are in Christ, none of that is true of you. It's just not true. Did you hear the things that Romans 6 just said about you? Did you catch the things that Paul said that God just said about you? Let me read some of those to you again in case you missed it. And, and hear me as I say this. I'm not saying you generically. I mean you specifically. If you are a Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus, this is what is true about you. Verse 4, you were buried with him in baptism and raised with him in order that you might live a new life. Verse 6, the old you was crucified so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin because, verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, sin has no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Verse 17, you used to be a slave to sin but that is in the past. Verse 18, you've been set free from sin and have become a slave of righteousness. Verse 22, you've been set free from sin and have become a slave of God. Verse 23, your old master compensated you with death but your new one freely gives you eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is your reality. And the Bible's heart, Paul's heart, our heart, is that you would live a life that matches up with that reality. It's important that you know this. It's important that you are told this, but I'll also tell you this, it takes more than just being told that. You need more than to just hear that once or twice. So go with me for just a minute back to the jungles on the Lubang Island. When Suzuki sets out into the jungles on that one specific day, there are a lot of people who think there's no way he's ever going to find Hiru Onoda. I mean, the man's been up there for 29 years and nobody else has found him. For all we know, the guy is Ted. Three decades, you think you're literally just some college dropout just for kind of a fun little uh, project, a little experiment. You're going to step out into the jungles and actually find this guy who's been actively hiding from governments and militaries for years. It takes Suzuki all of four days to find him. Steps out in there, and actually there's a picture that he took when he got there. This guy on the right, the young man smiling, looking away, that's Norio Suzuki right there. And then the older gentleman in the very worn-out military uniform is Hiru Onoda. Took Suzuki just four days walking through the jungle to be able to find him there. Um, that was the easy part. The hard part was actually getting Onoda to believe him when he told him that he could come down from there. Getting him to believe that the war was in fact over. In fact, he, he wouldn't believe him. He wouldn't go with him. So what Suzuki had to do is he had to take this picture home to Japan to prove to the Japanese government that Onoda uh, still existed and that he was still living up there. 
And he told him what Anoda told him, that he would not leave that mountain until his own commanding officer came and gave him orders to do so, gave him permission to step away from the war. And so they had to go find this man's uh, commanding officer, who is like an 80-something-year-old book salesman now, right? And so they go find this 80-year-old book salesman, and they put like a military uniform on him again, and they fly him over to the Philippines, and they march him up into the jungle so that he can finally go talk to Hiro Onada and give him these words, Son, the war is over. You don't have to live like this anymore. And finally, when he heard that from his commanding officer, Onada walked out of that jungle and for the very first time in 30 years, walked into a brand new kind of life. What I'm telling you today may be sort of hard to believe as you look at your life. To be able to look and go, my life does not look like, does not feel like the kind of life that is set free from sin. Like I know the patterns that I go into over and over. I know the way I run back to the same stupid mistakes over and over and over again. And so, man, it sounds great, Drew, but I just don't know if what Romans 6 is talking about is really me, if that's really my reality. But my plea with you tonight is that you would believe it. A couple weeks ago, Scott talked about this idea that we let God's opinion of us define us. And I want you to know, Romans 6 is God's opinion of you. So then why doesn't it feel like that? Why is it? Like, I mean, as hard as we may try, maybe, maybe some of you actually already knew this. Maybe some of you, I'm sure a number of you have been told this before. You've heard this a lot, and yet still that hasn't seemed to make a big change in your life. If Romans 6 is true, and if I know that, shouldn't this be easier than it is? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be easier to overcome sin, to do what God has called me to do? I'm not actually telling you that it's easy. It's not. The Bible nowhere tells you that it's easy. To, to put away your sin, to walk after Jesus and do what you ought to do. In fact, it uses some very strong and violent language to describe what you ought to do. Paul will say in other places that you need to put sin to death. Jesus will say if your hand causes you to sin, you need to cut it off. Okay? Jesus will say that to come after him, we must die to ourselves. That's, that's hard. <laughs> That's violent. What he's saying is it's going to be tough, but you need to do what it takes. I'm not trying to tell you that it's going to be easy because the Bible doesn't tell you, but I do want to tell you that it's possible. It's not easy because when you live your life in habitual sin for so long, it is very difficult to break free from that. When you have given yourself over, this is how Paul says it, what you obey you are eventually enslaved to. Whatever you choose to obey, and many of us have chosen to obey something for very long, maybe it was before you became a Christian, so that's just what you got used to, that was the life you knew, or maybe, maybe it was even after a Christian, and you've been set free from it, but you didn't know that, you didn't realize it, and you kept living in that, and so it still seems to have a hold on you because you have habitually followed that for so long. I want to use this... Um, illustration to kind of help us see this and understand this. It's not mine. There's this old Welsh minister by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones um, who, who gave this illustration of these two fields. 
He says, I want you to imagine that there are these two fields sitting side by side, right next to each other. And in between these two fields, you have this giant stone wall that separates them. Okay? Now, I don't, I don't have a stone wall in here. I want to help you visualize it. I don't have a stone wall, but I do have a curtain. So, you guys are about to be shunned. Shunned. Unshun. I really do love you guys just for the illustration. Reshun. <laughs> so, imagine, <laughs> imagine for a second that you have these two fields that sit side by side. And that field over there is the field of sin. Sorry, guys. <laughs> this is where all the sinners live. But here's actually the truth. This is, this is the realm that is before Jesus. This is the realm where sin is master where sin has all say and where it's in control. And actually, before I knew Jesus, <laughs> this is where I lived, on this side of the wall. And when sin told me to do something, when it said jump, I said how high. I lived at sin's beck and call, and I had no say in the matter because that was who I was, enslaved to my sin. And the wages that sin paid me Day after day was death as I became less of the man that God made me to be, as I became less of the person that he designed me to be, further and further from him and further and further from my true self, heaping up condemnation on myself as I continued to live this life controlled and dominated by my sin. But then one day, the Bible says, Jesus came and he rescued me from that. And he didn't just rescue me, as many of us know and believe. He did not just rescue me from the penalties of my sin. He didn't just rescue me and take away the wages. He actually picked me up and he moved me into a brand new field. And so now I live in a new realm and I have a new master. And now I have a master that's worth serving. Now I have a master named Jesus. And, and that master pays me not with death, but with a gift I do not deserve, which is eternal life. And as I get to serve that master, I become the kind of person that God always made me to be. That I get to live with the kind of joy that, that I'm supposed to have. That I become like Jesus because I become more and more holy. And there's a joy in this kind of service. The problem is this. Scott, say hello. Hello. See, you can still hear the wicked voice over there, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the issue. That as long as you and I live in this world, we will always be within earshot of our old master. That as long as you and I, and there's nothing you can totally help about that. That's, that's just part of living in a fallen world. That as long as I live here, I will always be able to hear my old master's voice. And if I'm not careful, it becomes very easy when I hear my old master call to me and tell me to live in a certain way, it becomes really easy for me to start believing that I'm his slave again. That I'm supposed to do what he says. And just by habit, I fall back into those. So the Christian life is one of doing everything I can to stop up my ears so that I listen only to my new master and not to my old, so that I take every step I can to move further away from that wall, to move further away from the voice of the old dead and dying master so that I can hear better the voice of my new one. You can open that up again. Thanks. So the question is how? 
how, if I've been moved into the new field, how do I remember, how do I live in such a way that I stop listening to my old master and begin to live to my new one? I'll, I want to give you two, two thoughts, two things from this text. Um, and, and there's more that could be said. I'm just going to pick these two because they're from Romans 6. Actually, I, I shared these actually at Youthquake, those of you who are here. Both in this text, these words, do the math and do the work. Do the math and do the work. The, the first one, do the math, that comes from verse 11, which says this, that you need to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin. But that, that word, actually, consider, we've talked about that before. When we were in Romans 4, the word is logizomai. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but we said that that word, logizomai, is a bookkeeping term. It's actually a word count. So in Romans 4, it says that God counted us righteous in Christ. Okay? It's a bookkeeping term. It's, it's an accounting term. It's said when someone looks at the math, when they're working through the things, they count, they logizomai, those things. And this is what Paul is saying. Do the math. Add it up. Your death and resurrection in Christ means that you are not enslaved to your sin anymore. I crunch the numbers. Look at what it says. Look at what Jesus says. Do the arithmetic, figure it out. And actually this word here, logizomai, in, in verse 11 is in the present tense in Greek when it's being spoken, which implies that this is a continual practice. That is that every day we do this. Every day I get up and I do the math. If X is true, if I am dead to my sin, if the Holy Spirit is now living in me, if I am a new creation in Christ, then that means no matter how compelling or how um, dominating or how addicting or how natural these sinful desires may feel to me, they are not me. And they do not have control over me anymore. I am no longer enslaved to me. It does not matter what I feel. It matters what the math tells me. And the math tells me I am free. Now, this is going to need to be more than just a passing thought. You don't just remember this every now and then and kind of go about your day. It's going to be something that you need to reflect on. Again and again, continually. It's going to mean less Netflix. It's going to mean less Instagram and more Scripture. It's going to mean time spent meditating on the truths of God. It's going to mean memorizing verses and keeping them in your head so you can continually do the math, so you can remember these things that are true of you. It's going to mean fixing your mind on them. It means perhaps taking Romans 6, 6, which says this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It means writing that somewhere and putting it in your car or putting it on your mirror or putting it on your computer so that you'll remember that from there on out. Or maybe taking Romans 6.11 or maybe Romans 6.14. You read through this thing and you pick what verse you need to, to have to remind you of what is true to help you do the math and put that there so that you can see it and read it every day and be reminded of what is true. Meditate on these things. Study these things and pray through these things. Pray that God will help you do the math properly. Pray that God will help you to see what is true, what is reality, so that you can live your life matched up with that reality. So second, first, do the math. Second, do the work. Verse 13 says this, Do not present 
Um, let me read it in ESV. Sorry, I got another version up here. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That word present is actually kind of like a sacrificial term. It's, it's the same word. It can, it can be translated offer, like offering a sacrifice. It's the exact same word that Paul will use in Romans 12, 1, where he'll say, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Um, and so it's this idea of taking something and setting it apart as holy, setting it apart. So this lamb, I've got all these other lambs. These are mine. This lamb I take and I set it apart and this one belongs to God. That's what he says you do with your body. That's what you do with yourself every day and you put in that effort. And so you get up in the morning and you pray to God and you say, listen, God, you have done your part in this and and your part is the greater part. You have saved me. You have made me new. You have placed me in a new realm so that I'm not under freedom. But now, Lord, I will do my part. And then I take steps throughout the day to retrain my body and mind toward that end so that I can give all of who I am to him. Now, this is where some of the hard part comes in. This is where some of the extreme language of the Bible in what it means to put death to sin comes in. And this is where it is work and it's hard. Um, Your sin will always thrive in secrecy. So if you want to be rid of your sin, if you want to put it to death, you're going to need to tell somebody. You're going to need to confess that to somebody. Um, to, to be able to have a brother or a sister who knows they can be praying for you about that, who can hold you accountable to those things. You're going to need to enter yourselves into accountability with people, mentors or your table group, people who will be able to ask you and pray about those things with you. You're going to need to, to, to use Jesus' words, cut off your right hand, gouge out your right eye. You're going to need to, many of you, take drastic steps to rid yourself of your sin. You need, to, you need to hand in your phone, some of you, because it trips you up so often with sexual temptation. Or you at least need to have someone put a password so you can't access a lot of those apps that you have access to. You need to do drastic things to be able to shape yourself and, 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 and get away from those things, to remove yourself from temptation, to not go to the places where you always trip up, to not turn on the channel that always messes you up, to not do the things in the, in the specific situations with your boyfriend or girlfriend that you always do that always trips you up. You're going to need to take steps to remove yourself from temptation so that you can retrain your body and you're going to need to, I already said this, but I'm going to say it again, pray going to need to pray that God will do these things. Let me say two things about prayer and, and, and seeking the Spirit. The first is this, that all the steps in the world are not enough to change your heart. All the accountability and all the confession and all the separation from my iPhone or from a computer in my room or from time alone with my girlfriend, all of that in the, in the world, it can stop my sin temporarily, but it cannot change my sinful heart. What I need ultimately is for the Holy Spirit to shape my heart and transform me. That's what I need ultimately, okay? So uh, I need that. But if I never do any of the steps, I never give my heart room to breathe. I never give it room for the Spirit to come in and do that work in me. So, So let me just say this. Don't pray that God will help you and your boyfriend uh, live a pure life and then go stay the night at his house and then get mad at God for not taking care of you. That's stupid. Don't 
pray that God will help you overcome sexual temptation and they do nothing about your iPhone and they get mad or act like God's letting you down because you keep doing those same things. Don't pray that God will help you to not give in to peer pressure and go off and do that stupid stuff you do on the weekends and go and get drunk and do all those things and then go hang out with the same friends that do that every week and then get mad and can't figure out why Romans 6 doesn't match up with your life. You're not doing the work. So you do the math and you do the work. And the work, like the, the steps you take alone will never be enough, but they need to be part of what you do. You need to do those difficult things. And over time, what you'll find is as we do the right things, the Spirit begins to shape our hearts so that more and more we want to do the right things. And the, the things that we used to do, we'll find ourselves wanting to do them less and less by the Spirit's power. It will always be work. It will always be a battle, but I believe that it gets easier and easier. I believe that it is a battle that is possible to win because of Christ's Spirit at work in us. There's this verse that I really love, and I'll just give you this to kind of close out. This is from 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Everything you need to follow Jesus. Everything you need to be the man or the woman that He designed you to be. He's given it to you. He gave it to you through Christ, through His death. We're not talking about doing anything that (coughs) earns your salvation, that makes you worthy of God. No, no, no. Jesus makes you worthy. We're talking about living up to the holiness that He confers on you. We're talking about living in response to what He's done for you. We're talking about the possibility to do that because you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you and we'll be done. Dear God, thank You for Romans 6. Thank You for the truths that are there. Thank You for making us new. God, we need the ability to see this as reality. We need your Holy Spirit's work in us to help us see that this is true, to help us do the math, and to give us the passion and desire to do the work. I pray for young men and women in this room right now who are thinking about the possibility of taking some of those next steps of of seeking after you as hard as they may be, confessing sin or seeking accountability or whatever it may be, but there's something inside of them even now whispering not to do that. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the greater work and press on them to do that and and press on us towards holiness because you deserve that from us and because you made a way for that in us through Jesus. I ask you that in his name. Amen.